Children's Church, teacher Meech in the back. Just an age-appropriate setting for them to look at the scriptures together. Um, before we start, I just I want to make a tiny little announcement. Some of you will remember Bob Burris and Vicki Burris. Um, they were the pastor. Or he was the pastor when I first started attending here. And uh, after a handful of years, he was called to another church down in Orange County. Um, and so he's been pastoring at that church. I think they just celebrated their 25th anniversary. It tells you how long I've been here. And uh, uh, this week is his last Sunday at, at Taft Avenue. He's preaching today. He's preaching probably right now. And then he's retiring from Taft Avenue. And so I want to pray for him. And I didn't want to have everybody distracted at that point going, wait, what's going on? Um, so Bob is, is excited. He's looking forward to what comes next, what the Lord's going to call him to next. But uh, his time at Taft Avenue is over. And so um, he's looking at options. I spoke with him this week, and he's pretty excited. <laughs> he's, he's looking forward to see what comes next. You know, he could go teach someplace. He would love to do a church plant. Um, he's talked about just going into regular business. He's been pastoring his, his entire adult life. And so maybe he'd just go get a job someplace. Um, so he's kind of looking forward to that, but uh, we'll see what the Lord has for him. So I wanted to let you know before we prayed so he wouldn't be distracted. Uh, so now let's pray. Uh, Lord, um, thank you for the faithful people who have led this church throughout uh, her history. Uh, Lord, I thank you specifically for Bob Burris. Under his leadership, I really uh, came to understand Christianity well and grow in the faith uh, from a brand new baby believer. And I thank you for Bob's uh, ministry, his partnership in ministry, and his leadership over the years. Uh, Lord, we pray for Bob and Vicki, and we ask that you would lead them to their next stage of ministry. How will they serve you next? What, what will be their calling? And uh, Lord, we, we remember that um, being a pastor is not the, the ultimate job for everybody, and it's not the greatest thing in the world. Sometimes regular daily labor is just as glorifying to you. And so, Lord, if that's what you have in store for Bob and Vicki, we pray that, uh, that you'd make that clear. But, Lord, we, we trust that you have something in plan for them next, and we look forward to see what that is. Father, I pray for Taft Avenue as they're looking for a new senior pastor now. Um, Lord, I pray that uh, the free church would be there to support and to help them and that they would find the right person to fill that pulpit, the right person to, uh, to lead Taft Avenue into its next um, part of its life, its next phase of ministry as well. Uh, Lord, I, through all of that, the, the thing that I kept hearing as I was praying was, Lord, you lead your church. Um, Jesus said that it was he was going to establish his church and the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against it. Lord Jesus, you establish your church and you lead it and you keep her going. And uh, we thank you for your faithfulness to, to us here as well. And we pray that you would continue to lead us in where we need to go next. Where is it that we're uh, being led by our master? Uh, Lord, we pray now for our time in your word. Would you open the text to us and help us to see and to understand uh, what it is that you have for us today. Um, Lord, we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So you heard Fernando read it. It's really a dark passage. And um, so the way I want to handle it this morning is, is basically in two steps. First of all, to just kind of go through the story as it's written, kind of point out some things and just understand where we're at. And then the second part, what I'd like to do is bring up four issues or address four issues that arise out of the text. Um, they may not be your issues, but they were the ones that, that kind of rang in my ears. So if you have other issues, ask me later and I'll try to come up with a, uh, a helpful answer. But these were four that I thought were uh, kind of just rise up out of the text. Um, the, the thing that you need to pay attention to in this is it's not only a dark story, it's a huge interruption. It just seems so out of place because what's been going on so far is the apostles are going to the temple and they're preaching and people are coming to know the Lord and they're receiving opposition from the priests and the temple guards. What comes next is more of that. And so Luke, for some reason, drops this story right in the middle of that. And that's a question that we need to ask is why, Luke, did you write it this way? Why do did, why did we drop this story at this time in this way? And if you heard, as, as Fernando was reading it, it's not really a lot of detail or a lot of explanation, and it, it's really just a simple recounting, this is what happened. And so that kind of raises some issues about well, how do we understand this and how do we interpret it? So let's take our time, go through the passage, and then I'll, I'll try to unpack some of that story for us. So it starts with the word but, and that's an important word in the Bible. 
because what the word but does is it connects it to what came before. Something happened, but this happened. And that's, that's the connection between the two parts. So what we need to do is back up a little bit. So let me read the end of chapter 4 uh, and then just right into the beginning of chapter 5, and you'll see how that, that kind of smooths it out. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon all of them. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid them at the feet of the apostles. And it was distributed to each according to his need. Thus, Joseph, who's also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he gave back some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So do you get how that but is really important? Is We're having a contrast drawn for us between Barnabas and his generosity and Ananias and Sapphira and what they did. So don't ever miss those little words. Those little words sometimes can really be important because they can connect things. So that but is really important. It's there for a reason. So that's the story, is the general mood of the church at this time is they're taking property, they're selling it, they're bringing the proceeds, they're laying it at the apostles' feet, and the apostles are distributing it to anybody who had need. That was how the church operated. And you remember last week I said, is that, um, is that um, explaining what happened, or is it establishing a principle? Is it descriptive or prescriptive? Well, it's descriptive in that I'm not asking you all to sell your houses and give me the money. Um, it is, so it's describing what happened, but it's prescriptive in the extent about generosity and how generous Christians are. And I say that because we see through the rest of the New Testament, there's this call to generosity. There is this constant overpouring of, of what you have to help other people and those kind of things. So it's descriptive versus prescriptive. Here's the problem, though. Luke drops this story of Ananias and Sapphira in, and he says they liked the look of it, but they wanted to keep the money. Now, another thing I said last week was these folks were selling parts of the promised land, right? Some of them own property in Israel, and they're selling their inheritance in the promised land and giving the money to the church. And last week I, said, I asked, why would, why would they do something like that? This is God's promise to them is they would have this land. And I, what I said last week is it's not enough. It, it can't be enough. God didn't promise them just a piece of real estate in Israel. He promised them the whole world. So they would sell their property. They'd say, I, why would I hang on to this? I stand to inherit the whole world. In Christ, I'm going to get it all. He's going to return and he's going to reign. So for, for people like Barnabas, that piece of property simply was not enough. It was too small. Why should I keep it for myself? I'll just use it for other people. Because in the end, when Jesus comes back, we get the entire earth anyway. And so I might as well give away what I can't keep to help those who need it. So that was the picture of it. Now, real quick, I didn't touch on it last week, but it bears mentioning. Barnabas gets quite a description, doesn't he? He's Joseph, who the apostles called Barnabas. He's a man of Cyprus. He's also a Levite. And then with all of that detail, he says, oh, and he sold property. So he probably did not sell property in Israel because technically the, the uh, Levites were not supposed to own property in Israel. So that's why I think Luke drops in the detail, he's from Cyprus. He's from Cyprus. So Luke may, or, um, uh, Barnabas may have sent a letter home and said, hey, put the property up for sale and send me the money. Um, so this is a guy who's saying, even that I'm gonna get rid of. It's not just the promised land. It's, it's, I'm, I'm selling that part off too because I know my inheritance is too much. So Ananias and Sapphira. Um, we know nothing about them except for these, this verse, this, or this uh, section that we're reading. We don't get a lot of detail. We never hear of them before. We never hear of them again. This is it. So there's not a whole bunch of detail. We'll take what we can get. So they, they sell a piece of property, and they keep some of the proceeds back. And they take the money, and they lay it at the feet of the apostles. And so Peter asked Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? So Peter somehow knew 
that Ananias had, had pulled the shenanigans where he was putting the money out like, yeah, man, I'm generous like Barnabas. Um, meanwhile, he's got a bag of money jingling on his belt. How did he know that? From the text, can you tell? There's no way to know. I've always just assumed that it was like he was like a prophet. He just had the Lord had revealed to him, look what Ananias is up to. And that's entirely possible. It's also possible that somebody came and said, um, did you hear that Ananias sold some property? Oh, wow, that's really neat. Yeah, I heard he got this much for it. My cousin's best friend's dog's previous owner's maid uh, bought it, and so that's how we heard about it. And so it could come through just natural courses, um, or it could have been supernaturally revealed. That's not the point. The point is they kept some of the money back and presented it as if they were giving everything. And so Peter asks Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And while it remained unsold, Peter goes on, did it not remain your own? You, before you sold it, it was totally yours. You could do with it whatever you wanted. And after it was sold, was it not also in your disposal? Now you've got a bag of cash. Wasn't that under your control too? Couldn't you have just taken some money out and said, well, I'm not going to give it all, but here's a portion. And Peter's saying, basically, that's fine. If that's what you wanted to do, that was okay. So this isn't a sermon about, about giving to the church. You know, give your all. Let's have 100% Sunday or something. This is, if you're going to be giving, be giving. While it's under your control, it's yours. Do with it what you want. But don't come and try to fib and make it seem like you're some other kind of person that you're not. So this argues actually a little bit for the idea of personal property. Peter doesn't chide him and say, hey, you know, you're a bad person for owning something and you should you know, always give it to the church. He said, while you had it, it was yours. Personal property is a God-given thing. Have some personal property. Talks about the personal property of having sold it and taken the proceeds and said, okay, now I've got this money. Even when you've done that, that's under your control. That is your thing. You do with it what you think is right. The problem was... Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Satan made you think that you could look good by giving a portion while holding some back. That's the problem. And after he'd sold, he said, uh, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? So there's Satan filled, but Ananias contrived. Ananias the, the word contrived, he established, he put it in place. Contrived means to bring about by deliberate use of skill or artifice. So he contrived it. The whole, Satan said, whispered into his heart, hey, by the way, wouldn't it be great if you just kept some of that? Ananias contrived in his heart how he actually executed it. So it wasn't like he was possessed and now he's out of control and he can't help himself. Ananias contrived. He, he set that in place. And so... As soon as he's done speaking, oh, no, he says, I'm sorry, he says next, you have not lied to man, but to God. In other words, who has Ananias talked to at this point? He's talked to probably some of the deacons as he gave him money. He talked to, to uh, Peter. And Peter looks him right in the face and says, you've lied to human beings left, right, and center, but I want you to know you haven't lied to man. Your lie is actually a sin against God. You've lied to God. That's your problem. That's the issue here. So it, that's scary because he probably didn't talk to God about it. You know, he probably didn't think, oh, Lord, I'm, I'm giving all my money, you know, like anything like that. He looked at all the people around him and he said, you're lying to the Holy Spirit. You're lying to God. That's a good proof text, by the way, for the divinity of the Holy Spirit is you don't lie to electricity. You don't lie to force of gravity. You lie to a person. And so... Um, little aside on the proof text there. So when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Um, Luke, the doctor, doesn't say he died. He says he breathed his last. I think there's meaning in that lack of the word died, and, and we'll bring it up in a little bit, but let that hang for a minute. The result of all of this, what was, what was the fallout of all of this? Great fear came upon all who heard of it. Great fear fell upon the people who heard about this. Maybe if we're going to be part of this church thing, we better take it seriously because people are dying if they don't. Great fear fell upon them. We'll come back to the idea of fear as well. So the young man rose up, wrapped him up, and carried him out and buried him. One of the questions is, why did they bury him so quickly? Well, in the Middle East, kind of like here in the Antelope Valley, it gets hot. And if you leave bodies laying around for too long, they start stinking and, and getting nasty. So they probably buried him quickly because they needed to. 
Or maybe that's just Luke summarizing what had happened. Not, you know, immediately they buried him right then, but just saying, here's the end of that story. So that's Ananias. Now his wife comes along. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. After an interval of about three hours. Does that sound like somebody just made up a story? I mean, if he was trying to make up a religious sounding story, he might say, after 40 days, because that's a good religious number, or you know, after seven days or something like that. But he says, no, it was about three hours. He's speaking like somebody who has intimate understanding. He has a connection with this event. He's heard what had happened. How long was it? Oh, man, it was only about three hours and his wife showed up. It doesn't sound fake. It, it doesn't sound like somebody's making up a story. It sounds very real. And, and that's just one of those little tidbits that you kind of blow past. And it's like, no, this is how people write when they're talking about something they know, not when they're making things up. So an interval of about three hours, his wife comes in. She had no idea what had happened to her husband. This was in the, I know it's going to be hard to understand. This was in the days before cell phones. So, you know, it wasn't like they would text her and say, hey, uh, bad news, um, Ananias is gone. They had to wait until they showed up. So they walk in, or she walks in, and Peter says, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yeah, so much. So Peter is offering her a chance to repent as well. Tell me if you sold it for this much. She, got a, she could have come in and said, well, not really. I mean, I know that's what we said, but... If I can be honest, we actually sold it for more than that. So Peter extends to her a chance to repent and a chance to confess, actually a chance to save her life. And she says, yeah, that was how much we sold it for. Now, did she know? Yeah, because at the beginning it says they were in cahoots. They, they, they talked about this. They understood. And so Peter says, how is it that you have agreed together? See, she's not off the hook because her husband lied to her. How is it that you've agreed together? You both knew about this. You agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. Again, not saying she died, simply she breathed her last. Her life is over. And the young man found her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And again... Luke repeats, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon those who heard of these things. This is the first time Luke in the, in, uh, the book of Acts uses that word church. This is the first time it comes up when two people die in church. That's pretty serious stuff. So that's basically the story. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? There's not a lot of additional comment or anything on it. But what I want to say is it, it brings up a couple issues. It brings up about Four issues that I'd like to address this morning. Uh, the first one, somebody asked me this last week. Were they saved? Where are Ananias and Sapphira right now? Are they in hell? Are they in heaven? What happened to them? Well, first of all, look at the text. Does it tell us? We can't tell for sure. So I'm just going to offer my opinion on this. Ananias and Sapphira are part of the group referred to as the church. And if you look back to verse 32, the full number of those who believed were of one heart. They are considered part of the group of believers. They're, they're part of this, this group of people. Um, they were those who believed. What we're talking about here is not what's called easy believism, where you, you say a prayer and you're saved and you can go live like the devil. Um, or is it uh, once saved, always saved? Well, I, I said a prayer, and so now I've got salvation for the rest of my life. At the same time, I'm not saying that they can lose their salvation. We heard last week about the elect, God's elect, and he's chosen. He, he selected them beforehand. So what are Ananias and Sapphira? I'm not sure, but I think they are legitimate, honest believers who sinned. Anybody here not sinning? Anyone you know, believer, but you never sin. If you figure that out, let me know. I'd like to figure that one out myself. Um, the problem with that is they died because of their sin. So are they saved versus did they die for their sin? Yeah, they, they, they did. Was their sin, here's the question, was their sin damnable? In other words, if you lie to the Holy Spirit by keeping money back, are you damned to hell for eternity? That's where I think, no, I don't think that's a damnable sin. 
I think it's a common sin. It happens to all of us. We all fudge once in a while. We're, we're tempted in those ways. So that's the problem. My guess, my, my expectation is that they were saved, that, that they actually were Christians, but something significant happened. We'll get to that part in a second. Um, they had the money, and they, they lied about it, and God struck them dead. Now, don't forget, these are two human living beings. They had mothers and fathers. They had a family. They may have had children. We don't know. And God killed them, dropped them in a moment. So when you see that, why on earth would God do something like this? We'll come back to a fuller answer on that, but here's another part of this question. Does God kill his people? Would God kill his own people? Would he take their lives? Well, it's a difficult issue, and I'm not trying to make, I would certainly would never make light of it because we're talking about the death of individuals. This is real living stuff. But think for a moment of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Every first of the month when we do communion, we read 1 Corinthians 11. We read part of that about celebrating the Lord's Supper. Well, in that, Paul says, you're supposed to discern the body, and if you come to the table in an unworthy manner, this is why some of you have fallen asleep. And he doesn't mean drifting off to sleep in church. He means some of you are dying because of this. So there is an aspect in which God will bring judgment on his people, and you could die. It, it could happen. The other thing is, yes, God has done this before, and the good news is he doesn't do it often. He does it very seldom. There were three times where I think it's comparable, uh, or two, two other times that I think are comparable, so we get these three things together. The first one is uh, Aaron's boys, Nadab and Abihu. They were the sons of Aaron, and they were priests. And in Leviticus chapter 10, they bring to God what he calls strange fire. They were told, this is how the tabernacle works. This is how the sacrificial system works. These two guys, in their own way, went out, filled up some incense in a, in a censure, lit it, and walked into the presence of the Lord, and God killed them. Fire came out from the Lord and destroyed them. And after that happened, God told Moses, don't you mourn for them. That just seems so cruel. How could, Le how could Aaron not mourn for his children? His two boys just died. So that's one instance where people are doing a religious duty and they got killed for it. The next one comes in 2 Samuel chapter 6, Uzzah. They, they've taken the Ark of the Covenant and they put it on an ox cart and they're hauling it, they're heading to Jerusalem to set the, uh, the uh, tabernacle or set the, uh, the, um, the Ark in Jerusalem in a holy place. And as they're leading it, one of the ox stumbles, the cart jostles, and Uzzah puts his hand up to make sure that the Ark of the Covenant doesn't come sliding off and land in the mud. And when he reached up and touched it and he held it in place, God killed him. He dropped down dead. In the middle of this religious ceremony, God killed a man. And then we see here Ananias and Sapphira. Now God kills them. So God does these kind of things, but he doesn't do them too, too very often. And I would argue that Nadab and Abihu are part of the covenant family. They are part of God's covenant family. Um, Uzzah was probably part of the covenant family as well. Ananias and Sapphira, as I've said, I, I think they were part of the, the covenant group. They were God's people. So why does God do these things? Well, first of all, notice that these executions, if we can call it that, these judgments happened at very crucial times in church history, in, in the flow of what God's doing throughout time. Leviticus chapter 10, what's just happened is they have built the tabernacle. They built the altar. They built the, um, the lampstands. They built the Ark of the Covenant. They set it all up. They consecrated everything. And when they came to offer a sacrifice, fire fell from heaven and burned up their sacrifice. This was a pivotal moment in Israel's history. They'd been wandering in the wilderness, and they built this tabernacle, and this is how God was going to dwell with them. So after this fire falls from heaven and burns up the sacrifice, then Nadab and Abihu said, well, we can improvise here. And so they bring fire from outside, and they walk in to offer to God something. And God said, no, that's not how this works. And he killed them. He judged them for trying to improvise at that moment. That's a crucial point in, in history. As the tabernacle is built, God's doing something in the tabernacle. He'll do the same thing at the temple. When the temple is built, that's a significant point in history. What about Uzzah? 
This is 2 Samuel chapter 6. David has just, according to chapter 5, David has just been made king, not only of Judah, but Israel. Both halves of the nation said, we will have David as our king. So David had been reigning in Hebron, and he was established. Judah said, yeah, we'll submit to, to or Israel said, yeah, we'll submit to the son of, uh, of uh, Jesse as well. We'll make David our king. And so he moves from Hebron. He goes and he takes over from the Jebusites, Jerusalem, and he establishes his kingdom there. So after he's established his kingdom, the next thing he does is he wipes out some Philistines. They're chronic enemies throughout both books of Samuel. He fights them and he beats them. So now he's established that. David is now settling into his kingship, settling into Jerusalem, and he says, now let's bring the ark up. So this is another pivotal moment in the history of what God's doing through people. So when they bring the, the ark of the covenant, the problem was God had told them exactly how to carry the ark. Only Levites might carry it. They must put it on poles on their shoulders, and that's how it's carried. He said nothing about setting it on an ox cart, even a new ox cart. You're not supposed to do that. So as this is happening, there's something unique going on in history. They didn't do it correctly. As a matter of fact, what happens, if you don't remember the rest of the story, is they stop, they set down the, the uh, ark, they kill the, the, um, the oxen, they burn them on the, the wood from the cart, and it sits there for years until David finally goes, okay, let's try it again. And he goes and gets Levites, and they put it on poles, and then it comes into Jerusalem. So this is something that's very sacred, very serious to God. So Ananias and Sapphira, what's going on there? Well, like I said, Luke interrupted what has been going on to tell this story. And isn't that what happened in these other stories too? The, the glory, of, we've got the tabernacle built. God has filled it. Isn't this great? And then they, somebody dies. David has now ascended to the throne. He's now seated on the throne. He has taken Jerusalem. He's established the nation. Where, isn't this great? And then somebody dies. What's been going on in Acts? Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. He has ascended into heaven, and now his name is being preached throughout Jerusalem. We've had people in the temple converted. We've heard about a man who was born lame. He's standing up and dancing and shouting out to God, and then somebody dies. It's constantly a reminder throughout history of God being very serious about sin, even the sins of his own people. That doesn't mean they're not forgiven. It doesn't mean that they're eternally damned. But what it does mean is there are consequences for our sins. And fortunately for us, God doesn't do this all the time. But he can do it at these important moments because he's trying to make a statement. He's trying to establish something. And what sits right in the middle of it is human sin. And he says, I'm serious. I'm dealing with human sin here. So don't let that pass you by. So are they saved? I believe so. Does God kill his people? Yes, he does. But he doesn't do it often. He more often than not extends mercy. We'll come back to that idea of him killing his people and what that can mean in a minute. So the second thing is they came and they pretended to be as generous as Barnabas. Right? You can imagine Ananias going, yeah, Barnabas, everybody likes him. Let's do that. And it, well, you know, but we got more for this property than we were planning. And so maybe if we held a little back, it'd be okay. And so they present themselves as hypocrites. They're trying to present themselves as doing something they're not doing. And so what about hypocrisy? If I'm a hypocrite, will God kill me? He didn't kill the Pharisees, and he called them hypocrites right to their face. So why did they kill them? Well, one of the things that hypocrisy does is it ungods God, if you will. So in 1 Samuel 16, when Samuel is about to anoint David as king... He keeps looking at the boys of Jesse and going, it's got to be this one. He, look at this guy. He's tall. He's handsome. He's pretty good in a fight. And God keeps saying, no, not that one. No, not that one. No, not that one. Finally, God reminds Samuel. He says, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And what was David's title? A man after God's own heart. So that's how God was looking at him. So when we want to be a hypocrite, what we're assuming is that's not true. We're assuming that we can fool God by this little shenanigans that we're doing. Now, we're not so sophisticated that we think we're actually fooling God. What we try to do is fool his representation, fool the people that are around us. And so that's hypocrisy. But when you forget that you're looking at God when you're doing these things, and you're saying, God, you can't see. You can't know what I'm up to. 
I did it in the middle of the night, so you don't know. I did it when nobody was around, so you didn't know. I did it online when, uh, with nobody tracing me, and I was able to transfer that money, and you didn't see. You're telling God he's not God. Because one of God's divine attributes is omniscience. He knows everything. One of his attributes is omnipresence. He is everywhere at all times. There's no area of this universe where God's unaware of what's going on. He's present in it. So hypocrisy in the church is telling God, you're not God. It's a lie. It doesn't make any sense. Rationally, standing here talking about it, we go, duh. But think about it the next time you sin. What you're telling God is you won't notice. You'll miss this. That's what it means to be a hypocrite. It belittles God. It assumes he doesn't see. Uh, John Calvin, in his commentary on this, said, um, uh, um, or, um, Ananias honored the apostles' feet more than God's eyes. What he's getting at is he wanted to come to the apostles' feet and honor them with this gift, forgetting that God's eyes are watching what's going on at the apostles' feet. So that's the hypocrisy. So if, if you're a hypocrite, will God kill you? Well, in one way, yes. Um, sin has a 100% terminal rate. Everybody who's ever sinned has died. And as a matter of fact, one guy who never sinned died too. So, so hypocrisy will kill you. It may not drop you in your tracks like it did Ananias and Sapphira, but it has a deadly pedigree. It may be a slow killer, but it will get you. So that's the, the issue of hypocrisy. Why didn't God kill the Pharisees? Well, we'll come back to this death issue again, like I said in a minute, but sometimes God lets his enemies run their full course. He doesn't cut them down in their youth. Do you remember what he, what he told Abraham when he said, Abraham, your offspring are going to go into Egypt and you're going to be there for 400 years? Why? Because the sin of the Amorites is not yet full. In other words, the sin is there. I'm aware of the sin of the Amorites, but it hasn't reached its full level yet. So he allowed the Amorites 400 more years to continue to sin before he got to the point where he said, now the sin must be cut off. So why didn't he judge the Pharisees? They're, apparently, it was that their sin hadn't filled up. They hadn't reached its full measure yet. Now, I will tell you, it didn't do, go well for them in 70 AD when Rome attacked Jerusalem. They didn't do too well in that. So judgment did come, but that's the nature of hypocrisy. The next one is really tough because it says, why did Satan fill your heart? Or not why, he says, yeah, he says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? So could Ananias have chosen something different? Satan came, Satan filled his heart with a desire to lie. Was Ananias just sunk at that point? He had no, no way out, no recourse? Was Ananias possessed at that point? Was, it un, was he incapable of exercising his own free will at that point because Satan had, had possessed him? That's a difficult issue, and that raises this whole thing about how does temptation work? How does it work in my life? How does it work in your life? What is Satan's role in it? Well, first of all, we need to understand something very clearly about Satan. He is not the opposite of God. He is not God with a minus sign in front of him. He's not omnipresent. God is omnipresent. He is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. So Satan can't be tempting you and tempting somebody else at the same time in the same place. He, he, he only exists in one place. He is a created being. He doesn't share in divine nature. So there is a good chance that nobody in this room has ever been tempted by Satan himself. That's a good news, because Satan's the worst. The bad news is he's got a lot of hirelings. So that temptation could come indirectly from Satan through one of his underlings to you. It could be demonic. The other thing is it could just be you. Um, our flesh is bad enough. Our fallen sinful nature is bad enough that we don't have to wait until Satan shows up to do something bad. Sometimes we'll just do it. So here's the situation for Ananias and Sapphira. Satan filled his heart. And then as I said... Ananias contrived. So Satan came to Ananias and said, you know what you should do is you should hold back some of that money because you never know what's coming, you know. You might need that for something. Put this idea into his heart. At that point, Ananias was not possessed and incapable of changing. 
But temptation is a very difficult thing to escape. When temptation comes, for us, even though we've been born again by Jesus Christ's death and his resurrection, even though we've been given a new heart, we're still carrying around a body of flesh, what Paul calls the body of flesh, which still is bent in the direction of sin. And so once temptation arrives, it can sometimes be extraordinarily difficult to escape. So how do you flee temptation? Well, the first thing is you have to recognize it coming. What is it that sets you up? What is it that triggers your temptation to do X, Y, or Z? So Ananias needed to think, when is it that I'm at my worst? What is it that I do? It might be greed. Maybe he's a, he was a greedy person. And when he saw greed or an opportunity for greed coming, that's when he needed to go, wait, stop. Okay, Lord, I see, it. I see what's coming. Lord, help me. Maybe he was a man who wasn't so greedy about the money, but he liked the appearance, the, the praise of men. He liked other people to think a lot of him. So when he looks at Barnabas and he goes, everybody's talking good about Barnabas. I'm feeling a little bit jealous. You know, I'd like to get some of that praise too. At that point, you have to smell the sulfur and go, Lord, I, I see where this is going to go. That's seeing temptation but not entering into it. That's stopping before it comes. And it takes a lot of reflection because you have to ask yourself, where's my weak spot? Where's that spot where I'm going to fall? And what are the triggers that lead me up to it? How do, I, how do I wind up in this place where I shouldn't be doing that? Is it because you crave approval of other people and when you don't get approval, now all of a sudden you're going to go find it someplace else? Is it love? Is it attention? Is it money? Is it security? Whatever it is, it's different for all of us. That's the issue of temptation. So don't ever say the devil made me do it. The devil didn't make anybody do anything. What he did do was tempt them into it and then they did it. Even Judas, you remember we talked about Judas, when, when he became um, the, the one who handed Jesus over, it says that Satan put it into his heart to do this. Not Satan took over his body and drug him into it. So the devil never makes you do it. The devil tempts you really hard to do it, and then you go and do it. So that's the issue of temptation. And then last one, I brought this up a number of times. Why would God do this? We, we talk about God being a loving God. He is a generous God. He is full of mercy. Why on earth would he kill people? And by the way, he does it. I, I mentioned those three cases. He kills lots of people. In Noah's Ark, he wiped out the entire earth except for eight people. In the, in the Promised Land, when they invaded Canaan, he wiped out all the people in Canaan. There's another story that's very similar to this. When they came into the promised land, when they took over, they, they sacked Jericho. And God's command as they went to Jericho is take nothing. Everything in Jericho is burned. You get nothing. Don't take anything out of it. Now, in other cities, they would be able to take certain portions. They'd take some loot out of the city of that. But Jericho, this first one, God said, you may not. And then after Jericho, they go off to this town called Ai, and they look, and went, man, this is easy knockover. We can do this. We don't even need everybody. Give us 3,000 men, we'll go take that city. And they got defeated. And so they go to the Lord and say, why did we, what has gone on? We thought we could take this. And it turns out a man named Achan took some of the spoil from Jericho. And how it ends is he and his family are stoned, and they build up a mound of stones over their, their place where they were executed. Wow, that's pretty harsh. His whole family, too? Yeah, you know where he hid the stuff? He dug a hole in the middle of his tent and put the stuff in there. It's not like the family didn't know. So God had him executed. God kills people. So why on earth would he do this with his people? I thought we were supposed to be safe. Well, there's one phrase that repeats in this section. There's one thing that Luke brings up twice here. In verse 5, he says, And great fear fell upon all who heard of it. And then in verse 11, it says, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So why would God kill Ananias and Sapphira? Why didn't he just drop them dead when they dropped off the money? Why did he call them in before the church and do that? Because he wanted to inspire what's called the fear of the Lord. Now, that can be a difficult issue because I thought God saved me. I thought God sent his only begotten son that I might have eternal life. Why would I fear that God? So let's unpack this a little bit. First of all, uh, Hebrews 2 says, Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, 
He himself, that's Jesus, likewise partook of the same, that through death he may destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So Jesus, why did Jesus take on a physical human nature? So that he could experience death. Why did he take on a human nature to experience death? So that he could disarm Satan. He could rip from Satan's control this fear of death. He, he um, might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So that's why Jesus came, was to destroy that tool that Satan would use. Satan did not have unfettered access to death. He didn't run around killing anybody he wanted. Do you remember the story of Job? Satan appears before God and Job, or God says, hey, have you considered my, my, um, my man Job? There's nobody like him. And then he refuses to let Satan kill Job. He gave him only so much lead. So it's not like when he says that uh, Satan had the power of death, it's not like he could go around and kill anybody he wanted. He could only kill who the Lord would allow him to kill. It was through the fear of death that Satan had a tool because people couldn't know if they could live again. What would happen at the end? If I die, am I gone? So Jesus comes and he disarms that. He takes that power away from Satan because now Satan can kill somebody and the Christian, the believer can go, that's not, that's not the end for me. You, you can't intimidate me with mere death. That's it. There, there's more to it. So Jesus warns us in Luke chapter 12, he says, I tell you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body and afterwards have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him whom, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And then the good news, he says, are not five sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not, you are more valuable than sparrows. So he tells them, don't fear people who can kill you because that's all they can do. The one you should fear is the one who has the power to cast you into hell. That's the one who you should fear. So fear moves from this fear of death to a fear of God. And then always connected to it is this promise, but you're more valuable to God. So your death is not the end. It's not the final state. One more verse. Revelation 2, I was glad Ramey read Isaiah 6 this morning because I think it really sets the, the tone here of this holy God. But Revelation says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Jesus is talking to the church at Smyrna and he says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. He doesn't say you're not going to suffer. He doesn't say, ah, it's not going to happen. He says, you will suffer. It's coming. Don't fear it. Behold, the devil himself, right? Satan again, is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. You're going to get thrown in prison, but be faithful even unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So there's that threat of death. There's Satan trying to scare people with it, but Jesus is standing in the middle and going, you don't have to be afraid of death. It's only death. I, I, I rule over that. So death for some people is a horrible loss. If you're the type of person who counts everything in this world as your hope. This is the, the only delight you have is accumulating more stuff, having more sex, owning more money. If that's all, then death is terrifying to you because everything you put your hope in, everything that you've, that's promised you happiness will be taken away when you die. You wind up in a, in a uh, rotting in a tomb. There's nothing, you can't take any of it with you. So for them, death is terrifying because life is all they've got and it's all they want. So death is, is just horrifying to them. It's a terrible loss. It's a, it's a horrible thing to happen. And so when somebody with that attitude hears God killed his people, there, it can't be any worse. That's horrible. Why would God do something like that? That's the worst possible thing he could do is kill somebody. Then there are other people who think of death as some sort of escape. Uh, the pain and the boredom in life is just too much, and so death sounds pretty good. I get to check out, and I'm just, bloop, I'm over. And so if they hear about that, death is not really a threat. It's not a promise. It's just, eh, you know, whatever. So that's the idea of just blinking out of existence. It's over. All, all the pain, all the boredom, all the frustration, it's gone. I'm, I'm just don't exist anymore. But what about us? 
I said, in my opinion, Ananias and Sapphira were believers. They were Christians. What about us? Well, we don't fear death. It, it doesn't hold the same threat. It doesn't hold the same promise of escape for us that it holds for other people. So when we hear God killed his people, we don't necessarily have to think, oh, how terrible. Because remember what Paul said in Philippians 1. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. That's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. So Paul is threatened with death. And what's his opinion? Well, if I continue to live, that's good, because then I can continue to help you. And if I die, that's even better, because I get to go be with Jesus. So when we look at Ananias and Sapphira and say, why would God kill them? It may be an extraordinary mercy that he killed them. It may be quite an honor that they were the ones who were going to inspire fear throughout the church. And it may be that they didn't lose their inheritance, that God brought them home quicker. Now, I'm not saying that they're going to have a you know, perfect welcome at the pearly gates. They're going to have some explaining to do because of the hypocrisy. But for the Christian, the one who has hope in Christ, death is not this, this huge threat, this, this menacing burden that faces us. We look at death and we go, well, you know, it's coming for everybody. Life so far is preserved, or, um, uh, proven to be 100% lethal. So there's some point where we're all going to die. And for the believer, we go, that's just the next step. Because what comes next is what we talked about earlier. You get heaven and earth. You get a new heavens and a new earth. You get freed from sin. You get a resurrection body. You get to walk with Jesus. You get to rule over this earth with him. We get the new heavens and the new earth. So to die for us, we look and we go, well, I'd rather live. I love the people I'm with. And, but at the same time, death is not so scary. It's not so terrifying. So we no longer fear death because Jesus defeated it. We now have somebody who's gone through it and come back and told us, I, I know the way through. I can lead you through that passage. So we don't have that fear of death hanging over us. We no longer have to fear Satan because his primary tool, his greatest weapon, has now been blunted. He may still kill us, but that's all you can do. That's the most you can do is kill me. That's, that's, I, I gain if you kill me, so I, I, I don't have to fear you anymore. We don't have to fear hell because, as we sang, Jesus took the burden of our sins so that we escape hell. We're not destined to that anymore. It's a horrible thing, and I'm not making light of hell. It's, it's a, a terrible situation. Don't go there. If you take one thing home today, don't go to hell. But we don't have to fear it as believers because we know we've been spared. What we do fear is we fear God. And the reason we fear him is not because he's horrible, but because he is so powerful, he is so mighty, he defeated death. He defeated Satan. He defeated hell. Our, our enemies... This greater master has, has risen up and beaten them all. Those things we had no control over, those things we could never possibly face, this other one has stepped up and he's broken them all. And so we fear him not because he's going to be mean to us, but because he is so powerful. He's defeated the things that terrify us. So that's what can be scary is when that kind of a person arrives and he comes and he says, peace to you. He says, I love you so much, I sent my only begotten son. That whoever believes in him will have eternal life. That's tremendous good news. So our fear of God is not equated to our fear of death, our fear of hell, our fear of Satan. It's of a different category. It's often referred to as respect, a fearful respect. If you had a father who was loving and kind but very clear and very sharp, you loved him, but you also had a little bit of fear of him because you knew if you crossed a line, you knew where it was coming. That's the idea that we have with God is our fear of God is not servile fear. It's not trembling and, and he's going to be mad at me. Our fear of God is this tremendous respect. And I would never want to offend you. It would break my heart to break your heart. That's what it means to fear the Lord. So when, when uh, Luke draws our attention to the fact that fear came upon them, that's a good thing. It wasn't this servile fear. This was a fear that said, we may not mess with this God. He's quite serious. He's the one who's going to be judging us. He's the one who's going to be watching over us. So that's why we get in the middle of this, this huge interruption with Ananias and Sapphira, is there's an element of fear that needs to come into this triumphalism. 
Peter is preaching and just tons of people are coming and this is amazing. But at the same time, we need to have this sobering moment where we remember what we're talking about is not fun and games. This is eternal consequences. These are major issues that Peter is preaching about. And the weight that hangs over you is huge. Even inside the household of God, judgment will come. So I think it adds a little weight. So next week when we look at what happens next when Peter returns to the temple, you get this sense of, wow, this is not only amazing that they're preaching, look at what's going on and look at what's in the balance here. It, it, it's weighty and it helps us keep these things straight. When we talk about preaching the gospel to somebody or sharing our faith with somebody or praying for somebody that they might come to know the Lord, you have to remember the weight of what's going on there. It's not just a mind game and will you agree with me or disagree with me. It is eternities hanging in the balance here. Lives hang in the balance. And Ananias and Sapphira can wake us up and sober us up to that moment. They can call us to remember you're not pulling anything over on God. You may think you've got away with it. You may think, I did it in the middle of the night. Nobody knows. But you forget, God can see. So the fear of the Lord is what's there to help us set our hearts right. And the fear of the Lord is part of who we are. It's part of who God is. It should be part of our gospel as well. It should be part of the message that we carry to the nations. So this is why Ananias and Sapphira interrupt our, our triumphalism. They interrupt the great news of the revival that God is sparking through Jerusalem. Supposed to keep us grounded, keep us rooted. This God's not to be played with. He's not to be trifled with. Let great fear come upon the whole church and all who hear about that. Let's pray. Lord, as we heard from Isaiah chapter 6, even the majestic angels who are even above us in the created order, um, who are more majestic, more powerful, they have a clear vision of who you are, even they look at you and cover their feet and cover their face and say, holy are you. Lord, you are so far above everything you've created. And so, Lord, when we sin, when we think we're pulling one off on you, Lord, I pray that that vision of Isaiah with the Lord high and lifted up, the picture of Ezekiel seeing these cherubim and this throne and this thing you can't even describe sitting on the throne. Lord, I pray that the vision of Jesus Christ walking among the seven lampstands, this exalted, beautiful, holy person. Lord, would you remind us of those things? And then, Lord, may Ananias and Sapphira remind us and sober us that you are a God who sees. You are a God who judges. You are a God who loves and saves. Those things are not in conflict. They're not in intention. They are who you are. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bring a fear of the Lord upon us, and Lord, I pray that there would be a fear of the Lord fall upon all those who hear these things. Lord, would you bring a fear of the Lord to the Antelope Valley and show many more people that you are a God who sees. You are a God who saves and you're a God who judges. Lord, bring that message to those around us as you're doing here in Jerusalem. May we see the same here in the Antelope Valley. And Lord, help us to not sin. Help us to remember who you are, and to fight temptation when it comes. Our enemy is powerful and he, he prowls like a roaring lion, but Lord, we know that he's a roaring lion who's had his teeth pulled. So help us to resist that sin, resist that temptation, and may we honor you. We pray in Christ's name, amen.